Well, as you can tell, Buster's not here. He is, I don't know, traipsing around North Africa teaching about Jesus somewhere, uh, which we're all thankful for. Not exactly a vacation, uh, but I'm thankful for it because it gives me a segue in the first thing I want to talk about today, uh, which is this. Whether it's North Africa or wherever, there are approximately, depending on your studies, uh, between two and three billion people in the world who are considered unreached. What that means is they have little or no access to the gospel of Jesus. What that means is they have no way to be saved from the wrath of God. Because Romans 10 says, I realize this is a heavy way to start the sermon, but so it is. Romans 10 says, how can they believe if they haven't heard and how can they hear unless someone is sent? And so we, as the church, East Cooper Baptist, as part of the Southern Baptist Convention, which has a missions agency, which is the International Missions Board, we have a deep desire to see the ends of the earth, those unreached peoples, reached with the gospel. We, we desire for there to be people sent, it says in Romans 10, I think verse 16, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. And so there are two ways, two primary ways, that you, we can get people, sent ones, to those unreached people so they can hear the gospel. The first is to go. Uh, we're going to talk about this in just a minute. Uh, but I, I just want to be clear that the, the, the biggest need for those 2 to 3 billion, 30 to 40 percent of the world's population, the biggest need is voices. They need, they need people who can go and be with them and live with them, build relationships with them and speak the gospel to them. And the percentage of people in the American church who go there, even knowing that they're 30 to 40 percent of the world, that they don't even, like we have churches everywhere here. They don't know who Jesus is. And according to Romans 1, they're still without excuse. Because they've seen God in his creation. They have the law written on their hearts, it says in chapter 2. But without someone to tell them the good news of Jesus, they're stuck in their sins. And so I ask you, if there are 30 to 40% of people in the world who haven't heard or don't have access to the gospel at all, why haven't you gone Why haven't you gone? One of the most impactful moments of my life, and, and I really think the life of this church was at a Furman Citadel football game in 2000, fall of 2000. It was my junior year. And I was sitting next to Craig Harris, who is your executive pastor or shepherding pastor, whatever we call him. And at that time, he, before, previously he had been my youth pastor and he had become the shepherding pastor at East Cooper. And uh, a lot of you know this story, but I was sitting with Craig and he leaned over to me and he said, Hey, Rafi and I just listened to this sermon by John Piper. And we were pretty familiar with John Piper at Furman. We, we were kind of his groupies, you know, like we would listen to all of his sermons and imitate him. And, and there's this one sermon that we listened to a lot. And Craig said, We listened to this sermon. It's called Doing Missions When Dying is Gain. And the point of the sermon is basically to say, hop on board the train of what God is doing in global missions or waste your life. That's, that's basically what he said. And Craig said, well, Rafia and I listened to that sermon. Rafia is Craig's wife. They didn't know I was going to talk about this. That I talked about it in the first hour, didn't tell him in the middle. Um, Rafia and I listened to that sermon and we looked at each other and we said, what are we still doing here? And they just left. They went to India. 
And, and, and they weren't in a life situation where it was like, oh, all the stars aligned and we went. They had two young children. They had it made here. It was a good spot for them. They were doing ministry that fit them. And they just left. They just up and went. And it was hard. There were adjustments they had to make. They had to commute from Thailand. And they ended up doing ministry in Mumbai. They did ministry in Bangladesh. And it was rich but hard. And I remember when, when he told me that, I thought, whoa. That just shook my whole paradigm for life. You just went. And so we had this say, saying in college that was planning to go, willing to stay. In light of, in light of the numbers, we say, we're going to plan to go out of here. Because we know the numbers. If the Lord, some, for some reason, some strategic reason for his kingdom calls us to stay, then we'll stay. But we better have a, a darn good reason. We have a good reason for staying. And uh, so, so Craig and Rafia, when they came back here about three years ago, you better believe they had a good reason, a good kingdom-based strategy for why they're here. So I ask you, why are you here? It's good for you to ask yourself that question because the biggest need that we have to reach the nations is people who go. The second way that we can get people to go is to give. There are missionaries that we need out on the field. It's hard to humanize this. We think, you know, it's just like we have a goal of $400,000. That $400,000 is either getting missionaries or sending missionaries onto the field because somewhere in the Himalayas right now, there's somebody sitting there languishing in their hopelessness and in their anxiety, and we need a missionary to get to that person. Somewhere in Nepal, right? And one of the ways that we can get them there is by you saying, I will give to keep that missionary or sending to send that missionary on the field. And so far, you've been very generous. We're, we're at, well, actually, this is a little antiquated. We're about $380,000 right now. Our goal is four hundred. dollars If we happen to give more than four hundred, dollars that's more people hearing about Jesus. That's good. But I would exhort you to consider in your own heart what you would give and seek to complete this goal. Okay, let's pray. Father, I ask that you would help us feel the kind of anguish in our hearts that we need to about people who haven't heard. We praise you that we have heard. We praise you that the gospel is good. We praise you that in this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And you have given us a way to know you. We pray for those who don't know you that they would align our hearts and minds and actions to get people to the field, to get people out where the gospel is not. Convict our own hearts. And today as we move into your word, I pray that you would show us what you are like. This is eternal life today. We would know you. Show us what your heart is like as we study your word in Isaiah. Um, help us to be broken in the right ways and to receive mercy in the right ways and to walk in line with your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, you know, I, I get up here every few months or years, and I tend to have these long, drawn-out series where I do one sermon, and about a few months or years later, I do another sermon that's connected to the last one, but everybody's forgotten it already. And so I want to give you a little review from the last sermon I did, and this one is going to be loosely connected to the one I did a few months ago on the necess necessity of emotion. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands of who could recite the outline of that sermon. Um, <laughs> but what I said, basically, was that in evangelicalism, in, at least in our little strain of evangelicalism and in our church, what we have done well is develop our theology, develop our intellect to establish what is true. And along the way, 
we have had some reactions to other strains of Christianity that would emphasize emotion to the detriment of truth and feel a little chaotic, a little out of control. And what we have maybe inadvertently done or maybe sinfully done uh, is made our intellect, our head, so to speak, if you're talking in terms of head and heart and hands as this, this triangle, we, our head has gotten big and it has actually become a shield to keep us from our hearts, the necessity of emotion, a shield that would keep us from either having to feel the extremes of joy and sorrow that the Bible prescribes for us, to rejoice in the Lord always with exceeding joy. It says in 1 Peter 1, right, joy inexpressible. And then over here, the the unceasing anguish that, it ta- that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 9 that he feels for those who are lost, his kinsmen according to the flesh, that kind of anguish doesn't feel good. But I try to make clear that we are called to those extremes, the sorrow and the joy, and both of those are rightly conformed to the image of Jesus, that his heart is about feeling extremes of sorrow and joy. But if we shield ourselves using our, the truth and the truth alone and we diminish the value of, of emotion then one of the things that that enables us to do is not just to keep ourselves kind of in the middle and feel fine and not have to deal with those extremes and feeling a little out of control. It also keeps us from having to live in constant dependence on the Lord for us to feel the things that he calls us to feel. And if we can't feel those things, then we repent and we lean on the Lord in our our sins of emotionlessness or our wrong emotions. If we just think in terms of thoughts and actions and leave the emotions out of it we don't have to lean on the Lord and say Lord I'm sorry that even though I did this I didn't feel the right way and therefore we don't have to lean on his mercy and therefore we don't end up knowing through those emotions the deep heart of Christ and so today I want to move from there and say that in that triangle of intellect emotion and action or head heart and hands it's possible I think for us to have a big head in a growing heart and still have small hands. There's a political joke right there, I won't make it, but to still have small hands, uh, meaning we could kind of get stuck or truncated at, we do the vertical stuff. Like we, we know what it is to speak the glories of the gospel and they even start to feel glorious to us, but when we bend those things from vertical to horizontal, we, we, we get truncated, we get stuck right there. And I think that's true. Of us. So we're going to look at the scripture today in Isaiah. Uh, we're actually going to be just down the road. Buster was in Isaiah 5. It's a long road. Buster was in Isaiah 5 last week and we're in Isaiah 58. So 53 chapters later, um, we're going to be looking at Isaiah 58. Last week Buster was talking about sanctity of life and the, the pattern of Isaiah is that Isaiah will preach a reproach, a prophetic reproach to his people. He'll say, woe to you. Like he said in in chapter 5, and Buster went through the woes last week. And then he will bring an ensuing promise. It's a wonderful promise ultimately leading up to the covenant, the new covenant of Jesus. But last week when Buster talked about Isaiah 5, the woes that he was pronouncing as they're translated into the present age were really woes on America. Woes on us as as a society in terms of sanctity of life. The bloodshed that he referred to last week was a bloodshed of the 60 million or so abortions that have happened since 1973 and while clearly and he said it last week abortion touches us abortion touches us and wherever it has touched us and wherever we have been guilty everyone who is in Christ has been washed of that guilt but abortion 
as we talked about it last week, as we talked about sanctity of life, it was more of an indictment on our society broadly than on us as a church. Well, I'm going to turn us inward a little bit today and talk about us as a church. So go ahead and stock up on the reality of joy and gospel now. Because uh, it's going to be a challenge. Like I, I tell our staff sometimes, my old director used to say, we, like we were sitting at Wendy's one time, he said, pick up that fork right there. He said, that's your gospel fork. And I'm about to tell you some things that are hard. And when I tell you these hard things, you're going to hold that gospel fork and you're going to look at that gospel fork and you're going to remember that Jesus loves you and so do I. Find something around you right now. Because th- this sermon, what Isaiah is saying in Isaiah 58 is, is heavy duty. Um, so let's dive in. Chapter 58, we're going to read the whole thing. It's not in your bulletin because it wouldn't fit it's, it's a whole chapter and so you can turn there if you want to if you have a bible if you have a, a device i'll give you 10 seconds you want to turn there bible drill i'm gonna read the chapter in verse one isaiah says cry aloud do not hold back Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Uh, Let me just pause right there. I'm not going to pause after every verse, just this first one. And say, just a reminder that for those of us in here who sit securely in the the hands of Jesus, no one can snatch you out of his hand. Uh, If you sit securely covered in the blood of Jesus, in his righteousness, then whenever you find reproach that God gives to his people in the Old Testament or wherever in the scriptures as an example uh, of his heart, an example of their sin for us to look at and be convicted by. I just want you to know as believers who are encapsulated and held by Jesus, we should welcome those things. It's kind of, I, I kind of want to you know, either turn into a cornered an- animal or kind of hide, but when he says, cry aloud, I'm going to tell you what I want from you, my ears should perk up and I say, bring it. I want to know your heart. This is eternal life. I just prayed it. I want to know your heart. So if there's a way that I'm not walking in line with your heart as one who's already adopted into your family and is not in danger of leaving that family, tell me. Tell me. And this is what he tells us. We'll start in verse 2. Yet they seek me daily, his people, and delight to know my ways. As if there were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not, they say. Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, the Lord says, in the day of your fast you seek your own pleasure or your own business. It can be translated. And oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness? To undo the straps of the yoke? To let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh, then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. Will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour out yourself for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, 
Then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath from doing your pleasure or your business on the holy day, on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord. And I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is what's going on in Isaiah 58. The kingdom of Judah has just returned from Babylon, the Babylonian exile. They've come back to Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is a ruin. And they are seeking to restore. They're in the process process of restoring Jerusalem. God's people are. And this is he's talking to them in the middle of that process. And the things that he says here are, I think, variably applicable to us. Some of them are more applicable. Maybe to, to you individually, you can take it as is. To us as a church culture and as, a, as an evangelical culture, I think some of them apply more strongly than others. They've been whipping me around. Like I think I, I, I'm learning that there are parts, there, there, are, there are ventricles of the heart of God that I just, I, I have not known very well. And so when I read this, the Lord is giving me the right kinds of transformation. When I pray the Lord to break me, that's a, that's, a, that's a prayer of trepidation. He's doing it. And I want you to pray the same thing because it, it, it's powerful what he, he teaches us in this text. But this is what we see in the text. There, if you want to look on in your outline, I put some blanks in there so you can, I don't know, do a puzzle. You can pay attention. Um, I, I broke up the text into the problem, the proposition, and the promises. Okay, the problem, the proposition, and the promises. And there are a lot of promises. We'll get there. Uh, The problem is that even though these people have come back to Jerusalem and they're seeking to rebuild the temple and the city, God takes no notice of their fast. They're fasting. It's not that they're without piety. These are clearly pious people. They're in some sense devoted to the Lord. It says in verse 2, they seek me daily. And delight to know my ways. In other words, these, these are orthodox type of people. They, they seek after the law. They seek me daily. They fast. They, they at least try to acknowledge that there are, or perform to operate as if there is a Sabbath. Um, to honor the Sabbath. And yet, God takes no notice of their fast. They humble themselves in their fasting. They spread sackcloth and ashes, which are signs of mourning their sin, but God is not accepting their fast. So you've got to ask the question, why not? And the answer, it seems from the text, is that their piety, their purported devotion, is just a shield from true righteousness. It's a shield from action. It's a shield from what God would actually choose, from true, lived-out righteousness. And so immediately when I read this text, I ask myself, Is my and is our devotion, is our orthodoxy, is our ability to get the truth right, is my big head in terms of my precision with the scriptures and everything that comes with it, is our specific culture the same kind of shield from the necessity of action? 
And let me pause right there and say, as soon as I use that phrase, that's the title of the sermon, as soon as I use that phrase, necessity of action, there's this little Martin Luther alarm that goes off in my mind. Okay? And he goes, whoa, 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 sola fide, faith alone, grace alone. So be careful saying necessity of action. Because Romans 4 is staring you at the face. And in Romans 4, verses 4 and 5, Paul says, To the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due, like what you earned. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. That's the gospel of justification. It says, what it means to be a Christian is to stop trying to not work and receive the righteousness of God in Christ by believing on Jesus. You, you put your hand on the lamb and accept the forgiveness of your sins because he's your sacrifice. You do not work to become a Christian. I just want to make that abundantly clear because I start feeling like, oh, be careful. Don't say necessity of action because you're people in here who believe, if you believe, you walk out of here believing that you are justified by what you do, you will not see heaven. My old pastor used to say, we are saved or condemned by what we believe. So I just want to be careful when I'm talking about the necessity of action to say, it matters what you believe. However, I think it's possible for us to take our doctrine and make it as a, a really subtle satanic temptation to make it a shield and say, first our doctrine to say, I, I daily seek to know God's ways. I want to get my doctrine right. I want, to, I want my head to grow. And along the way, if someone says, in my, in my orthodox doctrine, if someone says, hey, something about good works, like they, they speak out of James 2 and the idea of faith without works being dead, I go, whoa, whoa, whoa. Don't talk works to me. I'm, I'm orthodox here. Don't talk works to me, but it, I can use it as a shield and say, I'm good. I know the right things, and that's what it means to be a Christian. So I'm good. That's my story. I mean, I, I've spent so much of my last decade, 15, maybe 20 years of my life trying to get my doctrine right. And it's not that I shouldn't. We should. We should fight for the purity of our doctrine. There are whole letters in the Bible about that. I'm just saying there's a way to grow this big head... And even, even if the heart is growing with it, so a lot of times we grow that big head, the heart and the hands don't really grow. That's what I'm talking about. But we want those things to grow proportionately. That as our understanding, our understanding of the glory of the gospel of Christ grows, so our heart for the wonder of the gospel of Christ grows and our heart for those who don't know him grows in pain and then our hands grow as we say we're going to bend this whole thing horizontally and move this way. So getting our doctrine right is the first shield. The second shield would be individualistic piety. Individualistic piety. This is what you see really in verse 5. And the idea of the disciplines that they are performing. Namely the fast that they perform by bowing down their head. Like a reed and spreading sackcloth and ashes under them. Their, their piety is what they are equating with knowing God. For us that means... It's basically like saying, I have my quiet time every morning. This is what it means to be a Christian. I have my quiet time, and maybe through my quiet time, I understand the scripture more. I feel comforted. Maybe I even take those fruit of the Spirit, and now I'm going to be nicer when I walk around my day, and I see my cashier. I'm going to smile at my cashier. I'm going to let somebody merge in traffic as opposed to the road rage that I would normally have, and I'm going to call that being a Christian. 
And that's where, uh, that's where I just think we miss it. That's where I've missed it. That I may have this personal, vertical experience with God that may even impact, as I go about the normal trajectory of my day, it may impact how nice I would be to one person or the other, but the structure of my day, the, the priority system of my day, the, the trajectory of my day is still dictated by worldly, self-indulgent societal norms. Okay? So, in a new book, newer book called The Practices of Love by Kyle David Bennett, at least it's new to me, he says this, he says, the way of Jesus, the fast that Jesus cho- chooses, so to speak, does not involve endless private mystical experiences that tickle our fancy. Not just going into your prayer closet and learning the scriptures, which is a wonderful practice, just not a comprehensive practice. Rather, it is the transformation of mundane activities that have vast public implications for our neighbor. Many of us are blind to the ways that we oppress, neglect, and ignore our neighbor in the little things that we do every day. We have blind spots in our practice of love. We have coherent, solid, and persuasive views on sexuality, abortion, immigration, and taxation, for example. But we're not entirely aware of or intentional about, intentional about what we do during the week. At the end of the day, or more precisely during the day, when we are done with our deliberations and debates and we put away abstract concepts and universal principles, what happens? What are we like? What do we do in our daily deeds? And so we move on. God's people in the text are guilty of three things in their fast. Okay, Some of this will be reviewed. Number one, they are guilty of seeking their own pleasure or business, also translated business, going their own ways in the day of their fast. So under the guise of devotion, what they're really doing is just doing whatever they, whatever fits, suits them, increases their success, their wealth. If you want to translate that 2,600 years into the future or so, it would be, my days are given to building my bank account, to, in, to promoting my brand, to increasing my 401k. My days are given to just heading to town center and buying whatever I like. That's what I should do. And it's hard. Yeah, I'll get there. It's, I, I want to talk now. I'll talk later. The, uh, and, and, and I just want to say, there's a way to be noble in one way and not in the way that God is choosing in this text. There's a way to be, I, I, know, I know a family man who's a wonderful man in certain ways. He is so kind to his immediate family and generous to his immediate family. He pursues the good of his immediate family. But anyone outside of that pretty immediate sphere of influence, he's either indifferent to or hostile to. Stereotypically. And that's not the heart of God. Uh, So we need to be careful here about seeking our own business, seeking our own pleasure, going our own ways. Even if you think, well, I'll care for my family better. That's a wonderful thing. I don't think it's what God's talking about in the text. I don't think that's exactly the heart of God here. That's number one. Number two, God's people are guilty of oppressing their workers. You see this in verse three where it says, in the day of your fast you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. In verse 4, it describes their oppression of their workers when they say you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. And then in verse 9, 
If you take away the yoke from your midst, the yoke that you put on your workers, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, this is all descriptors. These are descriptors of how they treat their workers. Now, when, when you look at that, you may say, if you want to translate that 26, 2700 years in the future, you may say, well, yeah, maybe individually you have some conscience prick right there where you go, yeah, I guess I, I don't pay my workers enough, or maybe you're cruel to your workers. But in general, this one's kind of a softer landing, like it doesn't, it doesn't land on us that hard. But I, I just want to say this. If you were to fast forward from Isaiah more like 2,450 years, 2,500 years to Charleston, South Carolina, this would land really, really, really hard. The idea of in the day of your fast and devotion, you oppress all your workers. Uh, there's a little exercise that I like to do pretty regularly. It's a kind of a quirk of mine. Um, but I will be sitting in one spot and think, what would this have been like 150 years ago? 200 years ago, what would this have been like? I start thinking about what, what kind of technological changes would there have been? What, what societal changes would there have been or differences 150, 200 years ago? Well, if you um, just go down the road to Boone Hall Plantation and you stand there and then you transport yourself back in time, 150, 200 years. Uh, and I, I kind of did this. I was at a wedding recently, uh, a wedding reception. It was beautiful. Boone Hall's beautiful. They got the, it's, it's such a bittersweet experience to me to be at Boone Hall Plantation because it's got the... the live oaks and it's all just gorgeous and you walk I'm walking to the reception which is on the creek and it's just it's 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 beautiful itself but I'm walking past slave quarters thinking our great great grandparents not that far down not far that far up the line owned people they oppressed their workers under the guise of devotion under the guise of christianity it is one of the most egregious atrocities that we in, in our American heritage are part of at all. Like abortion is huge and slavery for hundreds of years and its ramifications, huge. And so when we read this, I think it would be short-sighted for us as opposed to saying, well, that's not really today. Now you know, we're in America. It's a land of opportunity. People have had 150 years to figure it out. As opposed to saying there are generational ramifications of several hundred years of slavery that are very much alive today. There are prejudices that are alive today. There is speaking wickedness that is alive today. One of those ways of speaking wickedness would be to say, if you're a white person, if you're in, in the majority, to say, those African Americans need to get their act together. They need to get, they need to get marriage statistics up. That is the height of hypocrisy, folks. That is ignorance at its finest. That is ostrich head in the sand type of stuff coming off of our great-grandparents and what has happened in the last 150 years. And this is not a sermon on racial harmony. It's just to, to, to touch on how oppressing our workers works today in our residual prejudices and certainly residual inequity. What's going on in Jerusalem is that these people are saying, we'll build Jerusalem on the backs of the poor. We'll enslave these people while we continue to increase our wealth, our prosperity, and we'll call it Christianity because we're doing our vertical devotion. But there's this, there's this egregious, a blatant inequity between them and the, the people that they're enslaving, some of whom are their own people. And so I think I would be remiss not to point out that there are residual effects of inequality or of slavery that are now just financial, socioeconomic, 
inequality. That's number two. Number three. This is a summation. They're guilty of practicing humility without action. In verse five, it says, Is such the fast that I choose? The Lord is kind of being sarcastic here. A day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? In other words, to put it in in our terms, there is a drastic disconnect between Sunday and Monday. You've heard the term Sunday Christian before. And I think growing up, like when I was in high school, I thought about Sunday Christianity when I look at all my friends who go to church. I think about what it meant to be a Sunday Christian as someone who would go to church on Sunday and sing the songs and do the worship, but then on Monday they would get drunk or participate in some sort of sexual immorality. Those are not things that we should do. Those are, those are sinful things. But the text here is talking not so much about tweaking your personal vertical piety as saying what it means to be a Sunday Christian is to come to church, to perform your fast, to perform your Sabbath in a way that doesn't really jibe with the trajectory of your life to help those who are afflicted and oppressed. So that moves us into the proposition. The the fast that God chooses is this, verse 6. Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. The action that he's calling people to do, and it is action, make no mistake, the action that he's calling people to do is mercy to the afflicted and the oppressed. What it means to not be a Sunday Christian is to give yourself to the afflicted and the oppressed. God is revealing his heart to his people through Isaiah in chapter 58. This is the fast that I choose. So on your outline, the first thing is let the oppressed go free. We live in a culture, and so the way that Buster talked last week about we let the oppressed go free in terms of the unborn, we're fighting for justice where there is injustice being aimed at the unborn. In the same way, there's, there are rampant injustices in the world and in our nation and in our little cloister of the nation, our little section of South Carolina that include abortion, they include socioeconomic or ethnic injustices. So the fast that God chooses is not for you to go about doing your own business or your own pleasure. The fast that God chooses cares very little about your 401k. It's hard. I feel that tension regularly. The whole how much money do we have and our financial security, should that dictate my day? Not the fast that God chooses. The second piece is share your bread with the hungry. In verse 6, bring the homeless poor into your house. He says, pour yourself out for him. That, I think it may be a Hebrew play on words in verse 10. It says, pour your, if you pour yourself out for the hungry. And the word here in pouring yourself out, the word is pour out your bread, which can also mean your soul. It's, it's as you pour out your bread, pour out your soul. To the homeless poor. Bring them into your house. He's saying the fast that I choose is to make your house a haven for the poor. Your house a haven for the homeless. That might feel a little uh, unpalatable. 
It's like, whoa, homeless people in my house? Like, I'll, I'll play hokey pokey. I'll put my right foot in over downtown at the homeless shelter for, you know, twice a year. And then I'll take my right foot out. Which has been, by the way, characteristic of my life, okay? The Lord is destroying me in good ways. I'll, I'll go across the bridge and then I'll come back. And the Lord is saying, I'm talking about a societal, civic, cultural inequality and in, 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 a blatant inequity, and we are seeking to fix this with those who are bearing the image of Christ. Because I think what we tend to do is look at people who are homeless and we say, they don't really bear the image of God the same way that we do. They're the irresponsible ones. And so I'll go and, and volunteer and feel better about what I'm doing or do what I'm supposed to do. But, but I'm asking the question, are we aiming to build equality for those who bear God's image? Number three, the fast that God chooses is not to hide yourself from your own flesh. To cover the naked when you see him. It's the, it's the kind of language that is used in James chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, where James says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works is dead. The go in peace be warmed and filled, the, the current translation would be bless their hearts. Oh, bless their hearts. I wish there was something that I could do. And there is something you can do. The thing that you can do is change the orientation of your life by God's grace. It's what I can do. When the Lord convicts me here, he doesn't say, what I need to start doing is I need to volunteer once a year. He says, you need to change the orientation of your life from your way, from your self-indulgence to seeing that what it means to know the heart of God is to be poured out for the afflicted. And I know that, I just feel it, I know that there's probably in this room right now an objection that says, you sound like a liberal. That doesn't sound like us. That sounds like a liberal talking. This is the land of manifest destiny. Where we take our stake and we go out west and we plant it and we fight off anybody else and we get ours. And if they can't get theirs, too bad. This is a land of equal opportunity, folks. And that's a lie. It's not a land of equal opportunity. I promise you that. And, not, and even if it were, the heart of God is clear. The fast that he chooses is to pour yourself out for those who are afflicted and oppressed. That is the fast that he chooses. So I ask you, will you reorient your life this way by the grace of God? And maybe some of you, as I say it, they go, well, I don't know what you're talking about, the afflicted and the oppressed and the homeless and other races and all this stuff, people who are socioeconomically different. Uh, but there's plenty of need right here. I hear it all the time. I hear it about missions. And I hear it about, I don't know, the Bell Hall neighborhood where we live. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know what to do. I don't, do, we, do we keep living here? I don't know. I just, I, when people say there's plenty of need right here, I understand that statement. The statement is, there are true afflictions. There are truly lost people here. Uh, and that's real. There are people who are dealing with the fall of mankind day in and day out. There are people who don't know Jesus on, on your right and your left in your neighborhood. At the same time, God is not simply talking about the suffering of their soul, though he is, in terms of their eternal soul and whether or not they're 
their names are written in the book. Uh, he's talking about the suffering, the, the earthly kingdom-oriented inequity, inequality that we see. And so in Mount Pleasant proper, for example, if we don't see that much of it, then I would say in that sense, there's not all the need right here. And we have to figure this out, folks. We have to figure out how to go to and be with and the, the afflicted and the oppressed and make our houses a haven for them. And connect, especially to those who are of the household of faith. So, here are your promises. I know that's, this is weighty, okay? I'm feeling this heavily, but the Lord has... It, it has is made this passage rife with promises, all ending in a really good promise. So just here are the promises. The first is if you, if you take on the fast that he chooses to loose the bonds of wickedness, to let the oppressed go free, to share your bread with the hungry, the Lord will say, here I am. I'm not going to give you every promise because there's a lot. I'll give you a handful. The Lord will say, here I am. They couldn't find him during their fast. Like the Lord's not answering us. And he will say, here I am. It says in Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 16. Man, this is a powerful verse. It says, He judged the cause of the poor and needy, then it was well. Is, this, is not this to know me? Or the NASB says, Is this not what it means to know me? Declares the Lord. To plead the cause of the afflicted and needy. In other words, he's saying, If you want to know my heart, really? Plead the cause of the afflicted and needy. I will say, Here I am. When you walk in this. Because that is what it is to know me. God is a pleader of the cause of the afflicted and needy, namely us. And so when he shows his heart for those who are manifestly afflicted and needy, physically afflicted and needy, and we participate in that, we're getting a taste of the one who, even though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Here I am, he says. That's number one. That's promise number one. Promise number two. The Lord will satisfy your desire in scorched places. One of the more challenging passages to me is Mark chapter 10, verses 29 and 30. And I think this is getting at the same idea. The Lord will satisfy your desire in scorched places. In Isaiah, he's not saying, just real quick, he's, he's not saying, I will... I will make your scorched place into a garden right here. He's actually using a second person personal pronoun he's saying I will make you or I will meet your desire when you are in scorched places so he's not saying if you go into scorched place it'll just stop being a scorched place not at first he's saying I will meet your desire I will satisfy your desire in that scorched place if you walk with me I will meet your desire <coughs> there and so in Mark 10 Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brother or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with, with persecution. So he's, clearly he's not saying all your circumstances are just going to be taken care of. This is not a prosperity gospel verse. And in the age to come eternal life. But he's saying now in this life a hundredfold. And I was trying to get... What does that mean? He would satisfy, satisfy my desire in scorched places or he would hundredfold give me more than whatever I left. And I was reading through this book that my wife read. It, it doesn't have the most masculine title. It's called Kisses from Katie. Uh, but it's about this girl, 
who was a student at like the University of Tennessee. She was 20 years old, just like one of your daughters or one of you. She's just some regular girl, like a sorority girl, okay? And she up and went to Uganda. She adopted 13 children. I think now she maybe has 16 children. Just by herself in Uganda, which is a scorched place. And I was reading through a journal entry that she had in here, and this is what she said. This is October 6, 2007. She said, the classroom where I teach is between the animal feeding grounds and the pit latrines. So my classroom is constantly filled with the smell of waste, animal and human. The weather is stifling here. The moment I step out of my icy shower, I begin to sweat. I sleep under a mosquito net to avoid getting bitten by mosquitoes infected with malaria and other diseases, but I still can't avoid ants and crickets in my bed. In my bathroom lives a rat the size of a house cat, and there are a few bats in the shower. This morning, I almost grilled a lizard in my toaster. Fred, my peaky man, he brings the, the, the flatbread, is almost always late, sometimes runs into cows, runs out of gas, or forgets to warn me of impending potholes. When it rains, the awful roads turn into muddy swamps, making it nearly impossible to go anywhere. For lunch and dinner, we eat pasho, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, which is corn flour boiled in water until it is thick and pasty. It tastes a little worse than Elmer's glue. Sometimes the children are so dirty they actually reek. It is impossible to touch them without becoming filthy. With the wind blowing red dust everywhere, it is impossible not to be filthy anyway. A rooster crows around five to wake me up each morning. That is, if I haven't already been up all night with a sick baby or getting sick myself. And to you, these sound like complaints. They are not. This is me rejoicing in the Lord because you see, I love my tiny classroom. I love the hot sun on my face. I love my bed cozy under my net after a long day. I love my home sweet home, all its creatures included. I love Fred, my peaky man. I love my long walks home, day or night, rain or shine. I love the beating, cleansing Ugandan rain. I love my Ugandan meals prepared with such love and generosity. I love to be hugged and touched and jumped on and cuddled by these precious children. I love the cool, dusty breeze in my hair. I love every African sunrise, the cool and calm of a new morning. I love each and every day, each and every moment that I spend in this beautiful country. I rejoice in each breath I take. And she goes on to say, during a worship service that the electricity is off and whatever, it's awful. She says, I sit here freezing and wet in this pitch black room as the rain beats on the roof and God is so close I feel I can touch him. My deepest prayer is that I could know the Lord as well as the first grader next to me. All my senses are full of his greatness. God's glory has fallen down into this place and is soaking us even deeper than the rain. I never, ever want to be dry. What happened to her, Katie Davis, normal girl, doing a normal Christian thing. It's a normal Christian thing. Is the Lord satisfied her desire in scorched places. The Lord gave her a hundredfold through a heart renewal, through the children around her, through the fullness of his presence when she said, all I have is Christ. Number two, the third promise is you will be a watered garden, an unfailing spring. This is what gardens and springs do. Gardens feed people. Springs quench their thirst. And so when the Lord says you will be a watered garden, what he means is I will be your source of water. I am the fountain of living waters. You will take great eternal joy from me. I will be your unending spring, overflowing with Trinitarian fullness and love and adoptive, my adoptive heart. And I will pour into you. I will, I will water you garden and you will go and feed other people. And that is a 
that analogy is so significant as opposed to saying, I will be a normal to myself, upper middle class American. You say, I will be a watered garden. A spring whose waters do not fail. Number four, you will be called the repairer of the breach. The restorer of streets to dwell in. What do you want to be? What do you want to be called? The repairer of the breach? Of injustice? Powerful. I've, just been, I've, been, I've been mulling over that phrase all week. Over and again, the repairer of the breach. What a powerful call. And then finally, well not finally, penultimately, you will take delight in the Lord. There's a quote from George Mueller that uh, some of us are familiar with where he talks about, George Mueller gave his life to orphans. And he said, I saw more clearly than ever that the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. He said, not, not how I would do ministry, just how I would find my soul happy in the Lord, kind of get away and find my soul happy. I love this quote, and I think it's really powerful. I think it's good, and it's a good practice. I don't think it's comprehensive. I think they're, according to what God is saying, he's saying, if you step this way, if you walk this way, then you shall take delight in the Lord. So there is something about stepping into this world, even as you're pulling the Mueller, so to speak, even as you're getting your soul filled over here in your private prayer closet, in your community group. But when you step this way, the promise is you will begin to take more delight in the Lord. You will know him. You will know other areas of his heart that heretofore we haven't known very well by and large. That's not our way. We're good at the vertical. We're not so good at getting ourselves dirty. And so, the final promise is the beauty of the new covenant. In chapter 59, God makes clear that even though he said to his people all these things, he couldn't find any justice. He couldn't find the way of peace. Verse 15 of chapter 59, the Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man who did justice and wondered that there was no one to intercede, but then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. And as you move, you see where he's going. This is, this is Isaiah. This is a prophecy, baby. This is, this is going towards Jesus through and through, everywhere, throughout Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 20, I mean, verse 20 of, of, of chapter 59, he says, and a redeemer will come to Zion, one who can execute justice, one who will intercede to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And this is what he says. He says, as for me, this is my covenant with them. This is the new covenant as it's spoken of in the Old Testament. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. So we are part of that covenant that's already taken place. Because the Redeemer, the actual repairer of the breach, who is Jesus, has already come. To establish justice. We don't yet see how everything has been, made, has been put in subjection under his feet. It says in Hebrews 2, but we will eventually. It's already in subjection under his feet. And individually for us and corporately, everyone who believes in him, it says in John 7, that out of their heart will flow streams of living water. That sound like familiar language from the chapter? Out of their hearts will flow streams of living water. They will be like unfailing springs. So what I'm saying to you is because your Redeemer has come, he has bought the Holy Spirit who is already, for everyone who is in Christ, you're already a watered garden. You're already an unfailing spring. This is not a conditional statement to you in the same way that it was to 
God's people, the kingdom of Judah. He's saying, you're already my children through and through. The Redeemer has already come. You're already a watered garden. You're already a spring, unfailing. So go live like it. It's gonna go be what you are. Go be what you are. And it doesn't mean that these promises don't hold true when you come back around. It's, he still means, if you want to know me, go meet the needs of the afflicted and needy. He's saying, but I already know you. My spirit is in your heart. So this is not just an if-then proposition. This is a, you already have this covenant. Go walk in light of it. So we close here. <coughs> we live in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. Or somewhere nearby. When we start talking about meeting the needs of the afflicted and needy, performing the, the fast that God chooses, it gets complicated. What, what you learn in Isaiah 58 and a lot of other places in the scriptures, what you see in Matthew 24 and 25 when, he, when Jesus is talking about separating the sheep and the goats on the last day, what you see in James 2, which is a last day eschatological judgment, what he's pointing to is, were you merciful to the afflicted? Because those who weren't merciful to the afflicted didn't really understand mercy. That's what he says. And so we're learning. I'm, I'm learning parts of the heart of God in this season of my life that I just didn't know before. In this call to action. I think I've shielded myself from putting one foot in front of the other and moving towards getting myself dirty. And building loving just societies that now are the restoration of Jerusalem. The restoration of Zion and the beauty of recaptured relationship of dispersed abundance from the resources that we have and the lack of resources that other people have that's beautiful but I, I, I think about where we are and I say uh, just a few practicals I, I don't know just a few practicals one is be willing to do anything you got a short life if the Lord calls you to go adopt 13 kids in Uganda okay that's not just like crazy hero stuff that sounds more like normal Bible stuff than what we usually do be willing. I just, I don't know that I've been, I, I've kind of, maybe I've given lip service to being willing. I don't know how willing I've been. In some things I've been willing. I'm asking the Lord for more. But just two practicals. One is take whatever involvement you have in loving your neighbor, take it one step forward. Like get off the couch on your Thursday night. And if, if you're not involved with the community group, get involved. That's not exactly what this is talking about, but it's just starting to orient your trajectory toward other people. If you haven't talked to your neighbor to your right or your left, talk to your neighbor to your right or your left. And then once you... Start to move your life more horizontally toward them and your spiritual disciplines flow out of you toward other people. Then you, you zoom out a little bit to a thousand foot, ten thousand foot level. You say, where is there inequality? Where is there oppression? Where are people oppressing their workers? Where are the homeless poor not being fed? And you go there. You go there and you, and you take a step there. And, and I know that I, I kind of poo-pooed going to the homeless shelter twice a year, but if that's your next step, do it. Do it. That kind of brings me to number two, which is humanize the reality of the afflicted. I can tell you stats. I can read stats. But there are wonderful ministries already happening in our church that will humanize the reality of affliction to you and the kinds of affliction that most of us are not familiar with day in and day out. Uh, Families Count is an amazing ministry. Families Count is, is a ministry to parents who have had their children taken away to help develop those parents in their spiritual and physical and financial health to bring them back to a place where they can re be reunited with their children. A powerful ministry. Foster and Adoption Ministry, which is our featured ministry, 
this week, the idea of supporting foster, fostering or adoptive parents, or I would just say, foster a kid, adopt a child. We have adopted two children, and it's not because of some kind of godliness in us. The Lord prompted us through a lot of other people around us, and it has changed our lives as far as how we see the heart of the Lord. Consider, consider your capacity in a more radical way than you have before. Or the hot dog ministry, which helps the homeless. That's a, that's a regular homeless ministry we have going on in our church. So I just say, make a move. Make a move somewhere. Just to start moving this way. And finally, be gracious. We, we got a long way to go as a church in this stuff. There are some things we do really, really well. And we, you should praise the Lord for East Cooper Baptist Church. We're, I'm, I'm so thankful. I, I came back to this church a few years ago. I'm so thankful. There are some things we do really not well. That's just the nature of churches. We've got a long way to go in this, in, in deed ministry, loving, heart of God, deed ministry. And so be gracious. Don't try to quantify how much you do and somebody else does. Just together, let's say, would we be together a, ward, a watered garden? Would we participate in the repairing of the breach? Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you are our source. You are the ultimate spring of living water, and your waters never fail. We praise you that you give us strength for the needs that you call us to meet. We praise you that you, you Lord Jesus, have been the Redeemer who came to Zion, and so we dwell in your mercy, and we need your mercy on these things. I, I confess that I've spent so much of my life not knowing parts of your heart that are drastically important. So I, I pray that together you would convict us, welcome your correction of us, and then help us to know you as we plead the cause of the afflicted and needy, that you would say, here I am, that you would be the satisfier of our desires in scorched places, uh, and we would see your kingdom come in eternal and physical ways. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.